Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part one in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning session of Sunday the 5th of April 2009, entitled Earnestly Contending, and the Bible reading is the book of Jude, chapters 1 to 25. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Book in your Bible, shortest book in your Bible, the book of Jude. It's not often you come to a service and read the whole chapter for the Scripture reading. But we're going to read the uh, 25 verses that make up the book of Jude this morning, beginning with Jude and verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroy them, destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, and hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beast, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom it is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the servant, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all 
and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank you again, Lord, so very much. Lord, for health and for strength, for the privilege of being here this morning. We know that there are those, Lord, that would like to be here that are not. We once again commit those to you. But, Father, we thank you that as we gather here that we have your word that has been preserved for us. And, Lord, that we have your spirit in whom we can have confidence that will teach and make these words alive into our hearts. And for that, we pray at this time. Lord, we know that you know the hearts of each individual here. You know those that have never truly been born again, have never experienced the second birth. And Father, we pray that you, through the power of your Spirit, would speak to their hearts this day. Father, you know the, those that maybe have been saved, but they're walking afar off. And once again, Lord, they be, need to be drawn near to you. And Father, you know each of your children that are carrying burdens, that have needs this day. And Father, as we commit them to them, we pray, Lord, that each individual's needs would be made today that they would be met in a way that would bring glory and honor to you. For in Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. God willing, we're going to begin this morning by looking at the first four verses here in the book of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, notice who he's writing to, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. There's no question as to who he is writing this letter to, to them that are sanctified, to them that are preserved, to them that are called. You know, I would like if you just turn back into your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 to remind you this morning of the surety that is ours when we know that we've been sanctified, that we have been set apart, if you would, set apart from sin and the world. We have been preserved. We can have absolute confidence today 
that if we give our hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have all of eternity to spend with him, the called. Aren't you glad that one day, Christians, that that Holy Spirit came knocking upon your heart's door, that you were called? You know, we can only love him because he first loved us. I thank God that the Bible teaches us that he chose us before the foundation of the world was even laid. We find that the instruction that's being given to us here in this book is undoubtedly and unquestionably for those that have genuinely been born again and belong to God, are part of his family. Now, in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, the Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Aren't you glad? As I've reminded you in the past, every one of those, even though that some of them are future yet to us in the flesh, they're past tense in the Word of God because with God, they're just as sure and absolute as if they were already accomplished. He says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He despaired not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If reading those verses if they don't excite you as a child of God, if they don't give you that assurance of knowing that when you give your life to him, it is forever. It is sure. He's promised to keep you. He's promised that there is absolutely nothing in this world or any other that can possibly separate you from the love of Christ. And we find that those here today, those same ones that he was 
giving that surety to in Romans chapter 8. Those are the same ones, the sanctified, the preserved, the called that he's writing to here in the book of Jude. He's telling us that there's something that we need to be willing to fight for. We find that, first of all, I want to draw your attention that there is a fight that is to be fought. There is a fight to be fought. Notice he carries on here. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, he says, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. It was needful for me that I exhort you that ye should, first of all, he says, earnestly contend. What does it mean to earnestly contend for the faith? Well, it's broken down two words in our English Bibles, earnestly contend. But it was one Greek word that literally meant to be a combatant. It meant literally signifying an intensive contest, intensive force, literally to combat or to, to fight for something. It gives us a picture of that which could be a, an agonizing struggle. It could take intense force, intense effort. We're being exhorted here that as his children, as those that are the sanctified, the preserved, the called, that there's a battle to be fought. And that we're to be combatants just as surely as any soldier ever has been or ever will be. That we should be willing to use whatever intensive force is necessary to fight in what could surely be an intensive battle to defend the faith. He's letting us know in no uncertain terms that this is a serious fight indeed. It is a serious battle that is going to take a lot, an intense effort on our part to be able to fight this battle. A fight to be fought and a faith in its fullness. You see, he says, earnestly contend for the faith. There's going to be this raging, agonizing, difficult, intense battle that you need to be a part of. And what you're combating for, what you're battling for, what you're fighting for is for the faith. What? In the world is the faith. Well, he's not speaking here of just that faith and trust that you put in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to become a child of God. I would remind you this morning, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is God's grace. There is no other avenue, no other road, no other way to get to God other than your personal individual faith. There is no church that can take you there. There is no people that can take you there. There is no religion that can take you there. It is your personal faith 
Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There is nothing in your personal life, in your relationship with God, that is more vital than your faith. There is no other way to get to God. You can't get there by just being here this morning. But as vital and as important as that is, your only, your only way to reach salvation, that's not the faith that he's speaking of here. He certainly has in mind what he calls here earlier in this verse. He says, when I write unto you of the common salvation, something that is common to all of us as believers, it does speak of the gospel. It speaks of Christianity in its realness, in its genuineness. But it's not just the doctrines or the teachings as important as they are, and we'll see that even though that is part of our faith. It has to be. But here, if you would, when he speaks of this, this fight that's to be fought, he's speaking of this faith in its fullness. He's speaking of the sum of all that makes Christianity what it is. All that is Christians, we both believe and live. We could say that the faith that he's speaking of here, it is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ being applied to our lives. Yes, through faith, by grace. And as it is applied to our lives, it brings to us this, this new and this eternal life as we trust Him with our souls for all of eternity. But it's also all that the gospel brings to our lives as a result of that. It is the Christian faith as a whole. And all that genuinely makes it what it is. You see, the problem is that when you begin to take away any portion of it, it's no longer the whole anymore. That's the problem. That's one of the problems that we face today. People have a faith. But it's not a faith in its fullness. Bits and pieces have been removed. He's telling us here that we've got to be willing to fight and to fight intensively, to fight as soldiers, to preserve the faith, everything that is genuine about our Christian lives. You see, the truth is, is that it is our faith and it is the Christian faith that sets us apart from all other religions. You can't take away. You can't take away Jesus genuinely dying upon the cross. You can't take away his bodily resurrection the third day. And one of the things that we're going to look for over these next weeks are those fundamental parts of our faith that cannot be removed. You know, it can be pretty confusing out there in this world today, can't it? I mean, the truth is, if you're here and you're a Christian today, how would you like to be maybe one of those lost people that's searching 
And they see this church saying this, and this church saying that, and somebody else saying something else. That's just those that call themselves Christians. That's not taking into effect all the other religions that are around, that are out there. And how would you like to be a young Christian? That you know you've come to recognize and realize the need of your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you're trying to say, well, where? Where should I attend church? Where should I fellowship with other Christians? Where should I go that I might be built up in the faith? And I'll say this, and we'll look at some of these things in these weeks to come. That's why, and I declare to you once again here this morning, folks, I do not want you to believe anything just because the Baptists believe it. I don't want you to believe anything just because Bethel Free Baptist Church says that it's so. I don't want you to believe anything just because Pastor Larry Curtis says it's so. I want you to know what you believe today and to believe it because God says so. Check it out. If I say something that's not based, that's not found in here, and I know everybody says they're getting it from the same book. But that's why I challenge you. You go to the book. One day you will stand before God. You personally will stand before God. And you will give an account. You will give an answer. And you can't stand there and say, Well, my preacher said so and so. Oh, that preacher will give an account for what he said that's wrong. There's no doubt about that. But that's not going to help you. God gave you His Word. You have a responsibility. And you see, the truth is, if you choose to become a part of Bethel Free Baptist Church today, it should be because that from God's Word, you've come to believe and agree on the same fundamental things that we as a body agree on. You're here because we agree together on what God has said. We find that there is a fight to be fought. And that fight to be fought is for a faith in its fullness. The faith in all that makes the Christian faith what it is. But I want to tell you thirdly this morning, there is a foundation that's firm, praise God. We're not standing on shaky ground this morning. He says here, earnestly contend for the faith, and he goes on to say, which was once delivered unto the saints. It literally carries that meaning once for all being delivered unto the saints. God delivered this faith that we're talking about to us, that which we are to fight for, that which we are to combat for. This faith in all of its fullness was delivered to us once for all by God himself. First of all, may I say, he delivered it when his son died upon the cross and rose the third day, praise God. That was a once-for-all act. Turn back just a few pages in your Bible to the book of Hebrews, if you would. And in Hebrews chapter 9, notice what the Word of God says in verses 22 to 28. He says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary 
that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that is as, as it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. You see, the faith, the faith in his fullness, first of all and foremost, the very foundation of our faith which we stand upon is Jesus Christ himself being crucified and shedding his blood upon the cross of Calvary and praise God rising the third day. That's our only hope. But of course, in concert with that, you know, we can look many places in the word of God. We could even look at the great commission itself when God sends us out to the lost world around us. We can find that the Bible teaches us there that yes, Jesus Christ had to die upon the cross. He had to fulfill that. But you and I have to take that message of what He did to the lost world. We find in Romans chapter 10, we talk about the beautiful, simple presentation of the gospel there. And yet He says, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they be sent? You see, the truth is, is that Jesus did die upon the cross. He made that once for all sacrifice, for all sin, for all time. We find that along with that, he delivered once for all this faith unto us. Look back with me, if you would, into Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice what the Word of God says beginning in verse 8. It says, Wherefore he saith, when he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The faith was delivered to us. Yes, the very foundation of all that we believe and all that we are and every hope that we have is what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. You see, he says here in verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. You'll notice in your Bible that that is in capital letters. In other words, it is a quote from somewhere else in the Old Testament. This particular verse happens to come from, from Psalm chapter 68 and verse 18. And Psalm 68 is a victory song, a victory hymn if you would. And here Paul is using the analogy that was written there of a king that had been victorious in battle. And therefore when that king conquered, when he was victorious, he had the right to the spoils. And he would bring those spoils home and he would disperse those gifts to his people. And you see, here he's proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the victor. And he says that he has spiritual gifts to give unto each and every one of us. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus Christ, he says, he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might feel all things. You see, first of all, he that ascended, he first descended from the very portals of heaven. Don't forget, you know, Jesus didn't come into existence at the incarnation. Jesus has existed for eternity. The truth is he descended from the holy perfectness of heaven to come to this earth for you and I. He defeated Satan on Calvary. And during that three days in the tomb, though, we find that Christ descended even lower into the lowest parts, into Hades itself. You know what? All those Old Testament saints, all those Old Testament saints that had used these types that we read about in Hebrews, Hebrews a few moments ago, they had faith, they trusted God. But you see, Jesus hadn't died on the cross. They were in this place called paradox. But now the sacrifice has been paid. <laughs> Jesus himself went down and led them all out of there, praise God, because now, now they could go to glory. Now they could leave that place where they'd been waiting for the Messiah to come. You know, I believe the picture here is much, much bigger even than that. The sacrifice had been paid once for all, all. All, that includes you, that includes me. Every human being alive in the flesh, they are a prisoner of Satan and of sin. And it's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that can lead us out of that captivity and that can set us free. And that's what he accomplished for us. You see, Jesus Christ was the victor. He's the one that led all of us out of captivity. He's the one that set us all free, praise God. And as a victor, the Bible says that he had some gifts for us. But notice with me in Colossians chapter 2, 
Notice what he says there, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. It says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus Christ, he took all of our sins, everything that had been written against us, every time that we'd ever failed God, every time that we'd ever broke God's law, and they were nailed to the cross, praise God. But then he openly... He openly showed his victory over the Lord Jesus Christ. When they started coming out of those graves, praise God. Jesus Christ had set them free. Verse 8 not only speaks of leading those captives free, but notice he says here, and gave gifts unto men. And he goes on because if you'll notice, verses 9 and 10 are just in parentheses. So when he quotes there in verse 8, and gave gifts unto men, verse 11 picks up, and he gave, that's the gifts that he gave. He gave, first of all, some, he gave apostles. The apostles of Christ. Now, it's very important. I recognize and I realize that there are those today that would still use the term apostle. That's between them and God. There were others in the church, apostles of the church that were referred to in the New Testament, but there was a specific group that were the apostles of Christ. He even refers to them later in Jude, the apostles of Jesus Christ. And you see, that was 12 men that were specifically chosen by Jesus himself. And he chose those, and of course, eventually Matthias had to replace Judas and then we find that Paul on the road to Damascus, he is chosen by Christ on the Damascus road, and he's called specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The apostles' responsibilities as we look into Scripture were primarily three. Notice, first of all, staying with us in chapter 2 here of Colossians Notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? And I'm in the wrong place there. <laughs> we find that we should still be in Ephesians. My Bible's in the wrong page here. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You see, one of the responsibilities of the apostles was to lay, or more correctly, to be the foundation of the church that Jesus Christ himself would build. So they were to lay the foundation of the church. Secondly, 
The responsibility was to receive, declare, and write God's Word. Notice in chapter 3, still in Ephesians, begins in verse 1, he says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which were in other ages, was not made known unto the sons of men, and it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Paul makes it very clear. Part of the responsibility was the recording and the writing, the declaring of God's Word. So they were the foundation of the church. They were to receive and record God's Word. And we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 12, the Word of God says, Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. You see, thirdly, to confirm God's Word through signs, wonders, and miracles. The apostles were a special set of men that Jesus Christ chose Himself to build His church upon. And these men, they were the foundation of that church. And they were responsible for receiving and declaring God's Word. And they were confirmed by signs and wonders of who they were and what they taught. He gave some apostles. He gave some prophets. Well, you know, it's interesting in the verses that we've read, you'll notice at least in a couple places that he speaks of the apostles and the prophets being the foundation of that church. We find that these men seem to specifically be for the work of God's people in the local churches then. They were spokesman for God. They spoke to the church either through direct revelation sometimes or by declaring revelation that had already been given. The Bible teaches us that even what they spoke, that their messages were to be judged for their validity and that it would also certainly in all instances conform to the teaching of of the apostles. It would never contradict what God was saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, notice what it says, picking up in verse 29. He says, Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may also prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. 
Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. You see, God will never tell you one thing in one way and something else in another. Jesus Christ, the faith that we're fighting for. We see that Jesus Christ himself, after he was victorious at Calvary, victorious over the grave, we find that he is the victor. He gave gifts, and he gave some apostles, and he gave some prophets. And of course, both of these were offices that were used in the very founding of the church, in the foundation of the church. They were specifically for that early church. We have absolutely no scripture anywhere to validate the perpetuity of the apostles, and they were not replaced when they died. I know. I know there are those who think that that office has come right down, right down, right down, till even that there's one sitting on the throne in Rome today that is a direct descendant of them. It's the foundation that the prophets and the apostles laid with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That's what we must build upon today. And though their offices have ceased in the sense that they were given to us, they were used for the founding and for the, the building up of God's church. But then he noticed he gives two other gifts here. For some there was apostles. For some there were prophets. But then he said he gave some evangelists. You see, I believe these next two offices are what replaced the first two. He gave some evangelists. Of course, we're to proclaim the gospel to all the lost, each and every one of us as believers. But these are men that are specifically called of God given to the church by God for the express purpose of proclaiming the good news of salvation to the lost. We find that back in the book of Acts, notice it says in Acts chapter 21 and in verse 8, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came from Caesarea, and we entered into the house of of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. So Philip was one that had been chosen as a deacon in the church. But here we find Philip had this special gift of being an evangelist. Notice that Paul, in writing to Timothy, notice what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. In writing to Timothy, he says, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. I'm saying to you that one of the gifts that God has given to the church today are men with the gift for evangelizing. That's their focus, if you would, of their ministry 
is winning the loss to Christ. That doesn't take the responsibility away from any of the rest of us. Oh, we got an evangelist, so we don't have to do it anymore. No, they should challenge us to do more. They should encourage us to do more. He gave some evangelists. Then notice it says, and he gave some pastors and teachers. Now, the word and here, pastors and teachers, it doesn't carry with it the idea of another as two different things, but it carries with it the idea of being in particular, pastors that are in particular teachers, if you would. Somebody can be two things, pastor and teachers. In other words, he's speaking of one that is a pastor that particularly teaches his people. It's just two functions of the same office. Pastoring, speaking of the shepherding aspect. So together we find that he's speaking here of a teaching shepherd. He's also described in other places as an elder, as a bishop, speaking more of his ruling role. Therefore, pastor, elder, bishop, they're all speaking of the same office. It's not uncommon to find the task of teaching being ascribed to any of these titles when we look at both the qualifications and the responsibilities of them. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in verse 17, he says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine, the teachings, especially those elders that are teachers. And notice in the next, well, two books over in the book of Titus, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Notice what the Word of God says here. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be... Now notice he changed it right there. He's talking about the elders. He changes to a bishop. He's still speaking about the same person. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, 
and unto every good work reprobate. Chapter 2, verse 1, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And he goes on again to explain why. I'm saying to you that it's one of the great responsibilities that a pastor has. Yes, he has the responsibilities of an elder. You know, can, can I tell you something honest this morning? Sometimes in the flesh, I'd like to just sit back there and let somebody else worry about it. <laughs> I'd like for somebody else to have to give an account to God for all those decisions that are made. But the truth is, I would not shun and put that responsibility away because I could never be pleasing to God. And so the responsibilities are great, but the privilege is great. You see, the bishop, the elder, he will give an account for how he leads the congregation. We find that he has that responsibility all through Scripture. Look at it over and over and over again in any church that is there. He has that responsibility. He's the one that will be held accountable for it. But he's also called a pastor, the shepherd, the under-shepherd, if you would, of the great shepherd Jesus Christ himself. And, of course, the shepherd's job is to protect his flock, to feed his flock, to care for them just as that shepherd would care for his flock. And as a teacher, to teach in all of these, whether he's being referred to as an elder, as a bishop, or a pastor, we find the Bible always puts the importance of the teaching of sound doctrine, the sound teachings of Scripture, that the false can be done away with. I've told you over and over again, there's no greater way to recognize the false than to know the genuine, to know the genuine. So we see this faith that was once delivered unto all the saints. It is the one true faith that is founded upon Jesus Christ and was a once-for-all act when he died upon the cross and rose again. It's founded upon Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, along with the apostles and the prophets that he set into the early church, which came the very foundation of what we believe and who we are as a church today. It's the faith for which he gave us evangelists and teaching pastors to continue to build on that solid foundation. The book of Ephesians, chapter 4. The book of Ephesians, once again, in chapter 4. Notice, notice what he says, picking up in verse 12. You see, he gave these gifts for a reason. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why did he give the church these gifts? For the perfecting of the saints, for the equipping, for the maturing, for the building up, for the protecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. 
but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being, being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil." Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. you. Say, wow, what a picture of what the church should be like. What a picture. That's why he laid the foundation that he laid. He says, that's why. I've given you these gifts so that you can build up, so that you won't be knocked around by all these other doctrines, so that your focus can be in the right places, so that you can edify each other and glorify Christ and God in all that you do. That's worth fighting for. And, of course, we won't linger there. But notice in verse 30, he mentioned something else that he gave us as a gift when he left. Grieve not... Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed until the day of redemption. My time is gone. I'm not going to turn back. If you're taking notes, you know the passages in John chapter 14. You know how he promised that he was going away, but he would send another comforter, another paraclete, another to come alongside us just as he had. You see, he gave us gifts. He gave the early church, the prophets, the apostles. He's given us the evangelists and the teaching pastors. He's given us His Holy Spirit. Through those apostles, He gave us His Word. We find that He's given us everything that we need so that we can be once for all. You know, that can't be changed, folks. No matter what the false teachers say, no matter what they try to do with it, the true faith, the faith in all of its fullness that makes Christianity all that it is, they can't change it. 
That's why it's so important. The faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints, and we as the saints are to do whatever is necessary to fight for it, to defend the honor of our Lord, to defend the faith that He's given to us in all of His purity with nothing taken away and nothing added to it. What made it necessary? We'll have to leave that for another day. But my fourth point was going to be a foe that's a fraud. You see, the truth is, We'll pick up there next time, God willing. The truth is, we have a fight to be fought for a faith in all of its fullness on a foundation that is firm and sure against a foe. It's nothing but a fraud. He's just a fake. He's false in all that he's done. And folks, we can be the victors. Mm -hmm.